The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Almost without fail, every, every uh, well, I guess it's less than somewhat, but every year at my birthday, I don't know if your mom is like this or not, but uh, every year at my birthday, uh, there was the inevitable stories that you're going to hear, right? I mean, about, you know, how she was pregnant and she wanted a frosty when it was like 10 degrees outside and the cravings that she had and how big she was and how hard it was to sleep. And then, you know, as if it was my fault that I was, uh, I was breech and she had to have a C-section and, you know, I looked like a frog when I was, she laughed so hard because I came out and I was, she was changing my diaper and a little baby, she said, I look like a little hairy frog. And she, you know, every year she would tell the same stories. See, I can recount them now um, because it's something to be a part of. I mean, for me, it was somewhat tiresome maybe at times to hear the stories but she had gone through this whole process of thinking about what it was going to be like to be a mom and then going through the whole nine-month, well, I guess the whole pre, you know, period before that when you were wondering, are we pregnant? What's going on here? And then the, the nine months uh, leading up to it and then the actual birth. And you know, it's a pretty big deal, uh, giving birth to somebody. And, and then you know, afterwards, the sleepless nights. And you know, sh- she and my dad had experienced that, and they were reliving those things. And just like uh, I'm not a very nostalgic person, um, I'm going to try to get this set so I won't be messing with it all morning, guys. I've been trying to do better with that. Uh, Weaver has uh, threatened to buy something that will keep it there, period. He's like, well, I, I'm, I'm a real estate agent now, and whenever money starts rolling in, I'm going to buy you a headset you don't always mess with all the time. But um, <laughs> that may have been TMI. But... Uh, <laughs> But we've been known as the TMI Church in our short little history. But, um, and I was, I was just having some, I'm, I'm not a very nostalgic person. I'm not kind of guy to keep pictures and cards. Like, uh, to me, birthday cards are, it's just paper, and I'm going to throw it all. Like, I, I finally had to ask Megan, like, what, what is the acceptable amount of time I can hold a birthday card before I can actually throw it away? And so she told me, like, you know, how long that has to be and before it's kind of ridiculous because I would just kind of read it and say, that's sweet, and throw it, throw it in the trash can afterwards. And I have no need for pictures or, or videos or anything, but I th- it is good she helps me because she is a, a serial chronicler. Is that a word? She's a serial, serial chronicler. She's always taking pictures and videos and writing notes and, you know, wants things in boxes to remember things all the time. And to me, that's called clutter, but to her, that's called memories. And, but, but she helps me in trying to, to think about that kind of stuff. And so at leading up to this being our first birthday, she's like, we really need to think about it and do something for it. And that's so why we're having the dinner and stuff afterwards. But it has got me thinking the past few days, like, I guess a little walk down memory lane, a little nostalgia this far in, like maybe my, my mom was about, about my birth. And, uh, you know, it, it really began, I'm not to bore you guys for too long, but uh, it, it really began maybe 10 years before we ever started. It was just, in a, I was a kid, I was 25, 24 years old. And uh, for some reason, I had just thought, hey, wouldn't it wouldn't be really cool to be a part of 
a church plant. Wouldn't it be really cool to be a part of a, a community of people who took the mission of the gospel seriously and took the, the call to community seriously and worshiped Jesus and were so awakened to the beauty that is found in Jesus Christ and the glory that's found in him that they couldn't help but respond with their whole lives. And because of that, they lived in deep, heartfelt community with each other, like knowing each other's deal, knowing, knowing each other well enough that I know when you're having a bad day, when you're putting on a front and I ask you how you're doing and you guys know the church face if you've been around church very see I already broke my promise if you've been around church very long you know the church face is like hey how you doing it's like oh great I'm doing awesome thanks brother and you think words like brother and and I'm God's just blessing me and things words that you never use the rest of the week but you use it in that setting because it feels like the appropriate thing to say because you have to put on this front that you're spiritual and that you're doing well and you have all your stuff together but what if we knew each other well enough that we knew that we didn't have it together going into it. And so we didn't have to put up pretense about having the, uh, putting our best face forward. We could be very real because we understand that my right standing with the Father, my right standing with you doesn't, doesn't come from my performance or my appearance of performance because that's where we get a bad rap as Christians is because people see that we're two-faced. They see how we are in church and, hey, I'm blessed, brother, I'm great, and we're smiling. They see us outside of that and it doesn't quite matched together, but what if we had a people who were so taken with the gospel that it, their whole identity was revolutionized and they understood that my, my value and my security and my right standing before God and before man isn't based upon my performance or my what looks like performance, it's based upon the performance of Jesus Christ. And because of that, I can be free to be real with you guys, and I can be TMI. I can tell you guys just how messed up I am and just how sinful I am and just how frail I am. We don't have to look like we have it together because we don't have it together, and we can celebrate the fact that we don't have it together because somebody had it together for us. What if we were part of a community of people that really believed that, and because of that, they delved deeply into life with each other? And then they didn't just hang around like a country club, just enjoying each other and having barbecue on Sundays. But what if they really took seriously the call to live on mission? The call to, to be a picture of a, a community that's on mission, like, a, like, a, uh, like an outpost on the, on the edge of enemy territory. It's an outpost of people who are living in community together, but yet, but yet they're scattering during the week. They're scattering during the day to go out into where they're working and to their community, to their neighborhood, to their, uh, to their events, to their clubs they're part of, to the gym, to restaurants. They're scattering all during the week, understanding that they're, they're following in the footsteps of our big brother Jesus who came on mission. But that we're not on mission alone, we're on mission together. What would it be like to be a part of a community of people like that? And that's, I don't know what that does to you when you hear something like that. It's a, maybe a, a kind of a frail description that I'm making of it, but that's the kind of thing that captured my heart. I was like a 24, 25 years old. It captured my attention. Like, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to be a part of. And, you know, life kind of happened and, you know, Megan and I were married and started a business and we had a kid and we're kind of just good members of the church were very involved. I was teaching and I remember one day I was sitting at my desk at home 
doing some paperwork, and I was listening to Matt Chandler and John Piper talk about church planning, which because I was a geek and that's the kind of stuff I did. I thought everybody did that kind of stuff, just listen to podcasts about people talking about church planning and, you know, how to lead a church and be a part of a leadership team. I'm going to try to settle this in, guys. Um, or if not, I'm just going to let it flop over and just ignore it. But I was listening to them talk about planning, planning churches and just kind of doing my paperwork, making my numbers work. And I remember this thought came to me. The thought was, you know, there's nothing more that I'd rather do in my, with my life than to teach the gospel and to help lead a community of people on mission. And it sort of, it, it captured my heart that afternoon and I started crying. I was like at my, at my desk, I'm sort of crying like a baby, like, yes, this is what I actually want to do with my life. And I'm trying to be quiet because Megan and Sophia in the other room, I didn't want to be embarrassed. You know, somebody walks in and you're crying for no reason. And, and so when I kind of got myself together, I'm a little bit of a crier. If you've kind of caught on with that already, I don't know. But uh, uh, so, so I finally got myself together. And uh, later on in the afternoon, I went into the bedroom. And I always had dreams. I always had plans. Like, this is what we're going to do, baby. And, and, and Megan would hear it in her eyes. Would, she wouldn't roll her eyes, but she would say, oh, okay. And, and kind of just see how that would not happen. And, but that, this day, I walked into the bedroom, and I looked at her. I said, baby, this just happened. I had this thought. I cried like a little baby, and I, I just need to tell you this. And she looked at me with a little bit of panic in her eyes, and she said, well, what does that mean? And I said, I don't know what that means, but I just know that this is the deal, and we have to figure out what what that looks like. And so we began a period of time of praying and thinking and talking and planning. And it finally led us after a while to talk to the EFCA. That's the denomination we're part of, the Evangelical Free Church of America. Went through their church planting, uh, church planter uh, training application process. And they ran background checks on us and uh, had their private investigators follow us and all the stuff that they had to do to make sure that we were kind of on the up and up. And the private investigator, I don't think they did that, but maybe they did, to make sure they were on the up and up. And then we became church planners. And then we didn't know what to do. And so we said, well, let's tell people that we're going to plant a church. And so we started telling people this is what we're going to do. And um, fast forward a few months, like early spring of 2012, I guess, we had our first kind of like, all right, we don't know what to do. We're going to pray about this whole church plant thing. If anybody, any of our friends or anybody's interested wants to come, we're going to do this. And we literally, that, that evening, we had no idea anybody was coming. Anybody was coming, except, that's wrong, I knew my mom was going to come. And I said, so baby, I know it'll be you and mom and me. And outside of that, I don't know if anybody else is going to show up. I, I really have no idea. And that night, maybe, I don't know. Kate, Kate was there, maybe eight, ten of us showed up. I was surprised that anybody sh showed up at all, and we started meeting occasionally and talking about it. Then we decided, all right, we need to meet more regularly, and we had to find a place to meet. And so you guys probably don't care about all this stuff, but I'm going down memory lane. And so we, just so you guys can know kind of where we've been over the past, uh, we, we decided, all right, we need a place to meet. We couldn't find a place in Carolina Forest. And, uh, but somebody said, hey, the Kroger— but the front of Carolina Forest has a meeting room, and you could use that. So we called them and said, yeah, you can come down and use it. And so on a Sunday evening, we walked up there. It was hot as the dickens in there, and there was, it was the both sides. It was like upstairs, and there both sides, two, two sides of the room were glass. And so one set that kind of when our 
my back was turned as I was talking was looking out over the parking lot. So you saw everybody driving in and out and carrying their buggies. And the, the other side, you could see out over like everybody shopping. So you see people buying milk and stuff. And it was so hot in that room that we had to open the door. So the whole time we heard Celine Dion or whatever else they had playing over the loudspeaker playing. And then we heard boop, 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 boop. That's why everybody's checking out. That's the price things going on. And, and like price check in aisle 12 and all this stuff going on. And it was, a te- it was terrible. The whole time, the whole th- time of the meeting, I'm like, I would leave. If I did, wasn't running this thing, I-, I would leave right now. And then we met at a clubhouse and then we started meeting at the rec center and we have some pictures that we're going to show at the end um, of us at the rec center. Uh, that was kind of rough sometimes, quite frankly. This has been rough here sometimes, but that was really rough. There were times where there was like, through the first summer, as we're trying to gather a team, there were like literally, literally five of us in the room and a guy playing the guitar. That's awkward. That is, that is really, really awkward. And that, that, I was like, this is terrible. Why did you call me to do this? Why did you call me to be a part of this? And people started joining on, and Dale and Keetra came on, and that was like a, a that was huge. I still remember Dale and I had two big conversations. One was the define the relationship conversation at McAllister's where we said, all right, we got to figure out what, what's going on here in our relationship. Like, where, where are we? Are we going steady? And, you know, what, what's the kind of deal? And Dale asked me, like, what do you expect from me? And, and, and you know, can I call? Can I text? You know, I don't know. Are we an item? What's going on here? And, and then he, at some point he said, all right, we'll give you a year. We'll be around a year. And uh, after that, I'm not making any promises, but we'll come and help you out for a year. And I'm like, okay, that, that's cool. And then I remember the next big conversation uh, late night, right before they close at Dunkin' Donuts in, at uh, 29th Avenue at the beach. And he said, I still remember him saying, I- I'm on. I'm going to cry. <laughs> That's silly. I'm a crier. I, just, I still remember. It was very meaningful. He said, we're on board. We're with you on this journey. And I was like, wow, that's awesome. I have somebody with me. So anyway, fast forward all that to say. We got, gathered a team, started getting together with a team and praying and planning, and we had our first launch a year ago this weekend. And uh, it's been kind of rough sailing sometimes through here. You know, like the first year you have a baby and the baby's crying all night long. You're like wondering, this, will this never end? And this is terrible. And there's times like you're, you're kind of sleep deprived and you're kind of not quite there. You're not, you're like, you're not sure if you're ever going to live again. If I don't get some sleep, if I don't get a nap right now, like I'm, I'm literally going to die. I don't know what's going to happen. And, and, and sometimes in the past year, it was kind of like that. But Armand's been here through the whole deal. Like there were some meetings, it was like, you know, maybe if the shanks, I told the shanks that came in this morning, like if the shanks didn't show up, like that was half the group. Like it, it was like, it was going to, it was like going to six, eight of us in here through the summer. And it's not a big group now, but it was really, really weird and awkward through part of those times. And if you've been through that time, we really appreciate it. If you've come on, we're really glad that you're part of our team. And it's only the beginning. There's 300,000 people in the Grand Strand area. And the majority of those people do not know, do not worship, do not love Jesus Christ. They haven't found out that he's the highest value in the universe, that he is worth giving their whole life to, that he revolutionizes your life, that, that his love for you and his grace to you is world-changing and earth-shattering. It changes your definition of what life is all about. They don't know that. They haven't, they're worshiping all kinds of things. They're worshiping pleasure. They're worshiping their golf game. They're worshiping success. They're worshiping the next house. They're worshiping having the nicest yard if they were 
retirees in the, na- in the neighborhood. They're, they're, they're having these kind of competitions back and forth about who has the nicest yard or the cleanest garage competitions. I'm never in the running for. But there's the things, people worshiping all kinds of things, worshiping beauty, worshiping sex, worshiping the next person. I can, whatever I can do, there's people worshiping all kinds of things that are vain and don't last and they haven't had their hearts and their eyes and their minds awakened to the beauty and glory that is found in Jesus Christ. And so as we're going into our next year as a church, we just want to take a second, a few minutes, to think about the goal and the vision and to think about, to dare to dream for a moment what it would be like to be a part of a community of people that delve in together share life together around the person and work of Jesus Christ on mission, following in his footsteps. That's something worth giving your life for. That's something worth being uncomfortable for because developing close relationships with each other is very uncomfortable. You've been through that time, like the early kind of DTR, relation, when you're in a DTR part of your relationship, and you have to try to figure out, like, you're kind of awkward trying to figure out where we stand and how you do things and how I do things and how that works together. And most people kind of jet out of relationships before you even get there. But it's worth it to be a part of a group of people who are sharing life together on mission. So to, to that end, we're doing some things. We're calling it Doxa 100 as our goal that by the end of the year, that by God's grace, not so we can you know, have numbers, but by God's grace that there could be 100 people worshiping here on Sundays by the end of the year. And uh, we've been kind of saving up together as a community. We've been giving money, even though we never talk about it. We have been giving. There's some baskets in the back. I'm not asking you to give. I'm just letting you know. People, our members have been giving online. We've been saving that up. So we're ready to, to do some things. We're, as I mentioned before, we're going to do a little promo thing. It's rolling out this week. It's going to be on, online, and maybe we'll do some other stuff. not really sure. And then uh, the another, other, another big thing that we're doing is uh, we announced to the members last week is uh, we're bringing on our first staff member, uh, Jamin Ortiz. If you've uh, been around us on a community group, uh, he's, he and his wife have been coming for a good month now, maybe over a month. Uh, we've been talking with him for a few months now, and he's going to be coming on and be uh, our part-time worship leader and doing some other things uh, for us, social media and some other stuff. But that's going to begin uh, the beginning of April. So our, the girl band, plus John, has been doing such a great job with us. It throws me off now because we have a, a guy in there. So I called him the girl band for a long time. But the, the girl band, plus John, has been doing a great job. And uh, Jamie's going to come in and try to, and uh, lead them and, and help uh, us kind of go to the next level as a church. And we're really excited about that. So they'll be leading the next, uh, I guess, two more weeks. And then April 6th will be his first week uh, leading. So that's going to be very exciting. So Anyway, we've got an exciting year coming up. We've had an exciting year uh, in the past, and we want to really celebrate that and think about that today. I'm, um, I'm going to pray. We're going to do a short kind of uh, look at this uh, passage today, and then uh, we're going to eat barbecue and whatnot. Father, I pray for um, us this morning. God, I pray that uh, I thank you for the opportunity that I've had to be a part of a community of people who have got this far into it, shared life together deeply and have given their time and energy and talents and uh, money and uh, all kinds of things for your mission. 
And Father, I thank you for the people that have joined us along the way, and I thank you for the people that will join us as we continue. God, I thank you for the people that have joined us who are, have just discovered the joys that it is to, to worship you and to, to give their life to you. And I thank you for the people that have come along and who have uh, who've been maybe walking with you for a while but are just able to bring their gifts and talents and energy and passion to the table. And Father, I pray you'd bring more. You'd help us that are represented here in this room and those of us that are part of this group that aren't here, that are in the back serving and out doing whatever today, that you would help us together to really pour ourselves into this mission that you've called us to. Father, I pray you'd open your word to us this morning as we look at this passage and that you would uh, speak to us and lead us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. There was this man... Uh, he grew up in Myrtle Beach, kind of old school Myrtle Beach. It's grown a lot in the past 30-so years, but uh, he, he grew up kind of old school Myrtle Beach. His dad owned a restaurant, uh, kind of a Myrtle Beach establishment, kind of downtown. And um, He grew up surfing during the day, playing around the beach, and then he would you know, help bus tables and wait whenever he had to or cook in the back or do whatever had to be done in this little restaurant. It's kind of a little area institution, and, and um, he got older, went to school, at, uh, unfortunately, in Columbia, at that place, and um, the other school, and uh, he majored in business, uh, ended up in Atlanta, and he was in finance, and he did really well at it, and ended up then in New York, like worked on Wall Street. Did really well there kind of moved up the ladder, and he got an offer for an amazing opportunity in Hong Kong. And so this little South Carolina boy grew up, is now living in Hong Kong. He's got a wife, got a son. Fast forward down the road a few years, his dad gets older and older and can't really keep the business running and kind of not really making as much money anyway that the restaurant and kind of closes down. And his, his dad sees his mom die, and he was the only son, so his dad's the only family member left in the area, and then he passed away. So being the only family member all the way, even in Hong Kong, he flew home for the funeral, uh, took care of his dad's stuff, and uh, he got nostalgic whenever he was in town, kind of riding around remembering what it was like to grow up in Myrtle Beach, and uh, decided to drive by the old restaurant. They still own the, the place, and Nothing was really going on there. In fact, some of the old furniture was still in there. And he walked up and saw it was kind of run down and walked through the restaurant. Just all the memories were just flooding his mind. And he could almost smell the, the shrimp and the fish cooking and hear the people talking and smell that smell. You know, when you eat at the beach and, and you smell like kind of the little, you smell the, the fried food mixed in with the, the suntan lotion and, you know, that little bit of like, stinky sweat all mixed in there together, and it was just all coming back to him, and he got nostalgic for that, and he said, you know, I, I, I own this thing, and I could sell it. It really shouldn't just sit here, I, but what I'd like to do is I, I really remember what it was like. I'd like to remodel it and get it back up to its kind of former glory, maybe update it a bit, but, you know, so it fits the times, but, but bring it back. Make, make this a restaurant again. And uh, maybe make some money off, off of it as well. So he had to go back to Hong Kong, and he kind of managed it from there, the renovations, and found this uh, chef and his wife, who had been pretty successful in the area, doing some other things, and brought them in and got them set up. And he was going to be a silent partner. 
in the deal, while they ran the deal, and he would make a certain amount of the profits back. Well, they had it open for a few months, and they, they didn't make any money, and so they, there was no profits coming to him. Which he was understood, it's kind of early on, that's kind of the way it happens. He's all the way in Hong Kong, he can't really tell how things are going. But you fast forward months and months and months and months pass, and he's not making any money off the business. And so he kind of tries to look online, see what's going on, and he figures out, like, this restaurant's doing some business, it seems, as he looks online. And, but he's, there's, the numbers don't seem to quite match kind of what it feels like is going on. And, the, and then he start, they start, like, not returning his phone calls. His emails don't come back. He's trying to, 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 to get some, some money out of them. They're not sending it to him. So he, he calls up a ter- an attorney in the area, and he says, hey, I need you to, I need you to go by, and I need you to go check on, on them, see what's going on. And the attorney comes and, comes, and he sees it's got a pretty big lunch crowd going on. He says something to them, and they, uh, they tell him he has to leave, has to get off the, print, the premises, or they're going to call the cops on him. So now the guys in Hong Kong is figuring out something's wrong, is going on, so he, he calls, and he, he still has a friend that's in the area, and he calls his friend and says, hey, would you go to the restaurant and go talk to them and see what's, so just get some eyes on there, tell them, I'm trying to figure out, like, call me back, return my emails, let's figure out what's going on. And the guy shows up, and he, he walks into the restaurant, and he starts talking to him, and then an altercation happens, and next thing you know, like, he leaves, and he's got a black eye, he's been punched in the face. So then that's kind of a big deal, then, Next, next thing, the guy knows, he's like, I, I don't know what else to do. He, he calls, the, uh, he calls the, the sheriff's department. The sheriff comes, and they send him away. And his, his last result, his son is in college in the States. And over summer break, he's in North Carolina, and he asked him, would you go down and check on this restaurant for me? And he thinks, like, now they'll have to pay attention. They didn't pay attention to the attorney. They didn't pay attention to my buddy. They're going to pay attention to my son. I'm sending my son there. The son comes in late one night after the dinner rush, starts to talk to them, and this dad never hears back from him. Never hears back from the son. Put out APB as a missing, missing guy. They can't, they can't find him. Finally, the police find a body three blocks away in a dumpster. They killed his son. What should happen to them? Jesus told a story a lot like that at Mark 12, if you want to turn there, Mark 12, verse 1. And he began, as Jesus, to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. He fitted, every, he fitted up with everything they needed in order for it to be successful. Verse 2, when the season came, that's the season that, that they should have given him a part of the, uh, a part of the wine. He sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. That's the wine. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. 
he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. They assumed, that we, we think the assumption is uh, either, the, either the owner, the master is so far away that he won't be able to do anything um, and we'll be able to stay and we'll be able to make this vineyard ours. Or they, they think because the son is coming that the, the dad has died and therefore they can get squatters' rights. They can, because they're already there, they can take over the vineyard. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. It was one thing in this day and age to kill somebody, but to kill them and not bury them was the greatest, was an insult upon injury. And then Jesus asked, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. As I read that this week and was thinking about it, I had a couple of questions about this story that he told, this parable. One was, why would these people act so stupidly against what is so obviously a more powerful force than they are? I mean, this guy owns the vineyard. He probably, if he he's lives in another town, another country, he probably owns multiple properties. He has a lot of money, he has a lot of influence. Why would they try to pick a fight with him? Another question I had was, why does the owner keep sending more and more servants after what has already happened to the servants that he's already sent? Why would he do that? And then another question I had was, why then, and maybe you were thinking this when I told you my version of the story, why would he send his son into that situation? Doesn't that seem like Stupid on both accounts. It's stupid on the people's account who are fighting against a more a higher power than they are. But it also seems silly or stupid or wasteful or shameful for the master to send the son after he everybody's been that he sent has been mistreated, injured, even killed already. And then the last question is the same question that Jesus asks: What is the rightful response of the owner? Why do they act so stupidly against an obviously more powerful force? Why does the owner keep sending more servants? And why does he send his son finally into such a volatile situation? And what is the rightful response of the owner? Real quick, we see three things here. I think in the answer to the question of why would they act so stupidly, uh, don't we all sometimes do stupid things? Don't we all pick fights sometimes that we know that we cannot win? My son... He knows, he'll, he'll do things, and I know, he, I know that he knew when he did it that he's going to get in trouble. This, he did this thing last week, and this, this bothered me so much. He, he, he went in the bathroom, and they, like, we had this like, box of wet wipes, and he took a stack of them that thick, that thick, and threw it. He was supposed to be getting ready for bed. He was supposed to be using, using the bathroom, and, and, coming, and he, he took, the, took the stack this thick and threw it in the toilet. Let's do the toilet. 
And then, and this is, I think he was, I think he knew exactly what he was doing. And then I think he panicked, like, oh no, this is not going to go well. And so in his mind, the thing to do was then, I know, I will sit down and I will poop on top of this stack of wet wipes. And I don't know, maybe he thought that it would maybe flush better or maybe we wouldn't see it because of the poop. I don't know, in his three-year-old brain that seemed like the thing to do, is going to cover it up with some poop. And so I come upstairs and say, hey, what's going on, son? And he says, I'm pooping. And I'm like, okay. And so I'm going to go over to help him get off. And I'm like, son, what is this down here? So you can imagine what had to happen because you can't flush that. Just fill in the blanks. So, and I asked him, like, didn't you know when you did this that you're going to get in trouble? Yes. Why did you do it? He had no good answer. But don't we do that sometimes? Just in life in general? Don't we pick fights and do stupid things that we know, if we really sit down and think about it, are not going to end well? but we do it anyway because we're just short-sighted. And there's a few things that will cause us to be incredibly short-sighted. One thing is the, a system that they're operating on. We see three, three systems at work in this parable real quick, and we'll be done. Three systems at work. Number one, we see the system of religion. See, Jesus was telling this parable to the leaders of Israel because the Israel, the nation of Israel, had been compared to a vineyard all through the Old Testament. So whenever he started using the picture of a vineyard, they knew he's talking about Israel. Whenever he says that these tenants are, misuse, are misusing the vineyard and ignoring the, the rightful owner, the rightful master of the vineyard, he, they knew he was talking about them. You see, Jesus came to abolish and subvert the system of religion. The system of religion that says that if I check off the box and if I do the right things, then I can feel good about myself. And if I check off enough boxes and do enough right things, then I can feel better about myself than everybody else around me who cannot check those boxes off and have not done the right things. And so then we have whole churches and whole societies of people that are built around this idea that I am a better person, I'm a good person, I kind of have it together because I'm checking off the boxes and I'm doing the right things. I'm not doing these bad things. I am doing these things. And so then we sort of hold this kind of power over people who aren't checking them off. I feel good about myself. The South is full of empty religion. The South, churches in the South are full of people who, whose whole method, the whole reason for coming to church is so that they can check off a box so they can feel better about the people who don't come to church. Or the whole people that, who come and give money or who read or read the Bible or pray. By the way, all those are good things, but people who do those things because they feel better than the people who come to church and don't do those things. I'm checking it off. I feel better. I have a system of religion that empowers me and puts other people down so I can feel better than them because it doesn't feel any, it doesn't make any, diff, any good for me if I, it's not no good for me if I feel better about myself if I don't have somebody to compare myself with down below. And Jesus came to totally subvert that system. He said, you guys have misused the vineyard that God planted, that God gave you, the whole law, the whole system that God gave you. The whole purpose of it was to show you your great need for a Savior, not for you to fool yourself into thinking you could be your own. 
Jesus came to subvert the system of religion. The second system that you see at work here is the system of rebellion, which subverts the, so the system of, of religion subverts the worship of God. The system of rebellion subverts the authority of God. It, it says, you aren't going to be God over me because if somehow I can get rid of God, then who's going to be God? I am. If I can somehow in my mind get rid of God, if I can say he doesn't exist, if I can kill his son, if I can kill his servants and throw them, if I can ignore them, if I could do whatever they had to do in the story or in my life in order to, to think that there is no God or think that he has no claim over me or no control over me or no power over me, then I can somehow be God myself. If I can convince myself and convince other people that there is no God or God has no claim over me, then who is left to be God? I am, and I get to call my shots. We see that at work in the story here that he's telling. They didn't want to, to bow to the authority of the one. We talked about a true authority last week. They didn't want to bow to the authority of the one who actually owned the vineyard. And you and I do the same thing all the time. Your life that God gave you, according to his purpose, he built the, the, like he built the tower and he built the, the wall in order to keep it safe from wild animals and he built the trench in order to make the wine, all those things that he did, all the gifts and talents and abilities and life and breath that he has given you, he's gave you to, in order to glorify him and enjoy him forever, to give your life to, to know him and enjoy him forever. And yet we subvert that and we turn that to our own deal and we kind of tend to think that like because he's away, because I can't see him, because he's not around, I can be in charge. But the third system we see at work here, not just not the system of religion that subverts worship, the system of uh, of rebellion that subverts the authority of God. We see a third system here. We see the syst- the system of sacrifice. Why did he send his son to a situation? that he knew was going to be volatile? And why did the son willingly come into a situation that he knew was going to be volatile? Because the very act of them taking the son and killing him, treating him shamefully, and throwing him out like just normal garbage actually was actually the, the recipe in order for God to redeem his people. The system of sacrifice, Jesus came to sacrifice himself in order to subvert the systems of religion and the system of rebellion. And Myrtle Beach, this area is full of either religion or rebellion or some weird mixture of them both. Have you ever, like, you know those guys? You know those guys that are in church on Sunday and like I heard somebody describe this week, like, I, like they slide in fresh from a night of partying, like they're tagging base, like I made it, I'm all right. One more week, and so they put on the right face at church, and they have everything going, but then the rest of the week, they're out just doing whatever in the world they want to do. They have both kind of religion and rebellion. Like, I don't know which one is the way to go, so I'm going to put them both in my pocket. There's people who are just out living rebellion, doing whatever I want to do. God has no claim over me. I don't acknowledge him. I don't believe there is such a, such, such a thing as God. Wherever, wherever on the spectrum they fall over here, this other side is people full in these churches of padded pews and beautiful worship music who... Have not all of them, but I'm saying a great big part of the system is to feel better about myself than about other people. And Jesus came to sacrifice himself to subvert both of those systems, to throw them both off the map. He came and he lived the, that perfect life that the religious people think they're living, 
He actually lived it on our behalf. And then he died a sacrificial death in order to reach out to those of us who are rebellious and running our own way and pull us to himself. There's a verse, and I'm going to skip uh, to uh, 1 Peter 2. You can turn there if you like. If, if you don't, it's, it's fine. 1 Peter 2, verse 4 through verse 9. It's talking about, remember at the end of that, he said the cornerstone. Um, I'll make sure I quote it correctly here so I don't get it all, all wrong. Been reading all week. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So they rejected the, the stone, but Jesus was, would then become, because of their rejection, he would become the new cornerstone. Look at 1 Peter 2 4. As you come, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, as you come to him, that's Jesus, a living stone, that's him, rejected by men, that's what we just read, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. He was chosen and precious in order to redeem us. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion. Anytime you read Zion, generally in Scripture, it's, talking, it's a picture of the churches to come. I'm laying in Zion, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble. Because they disobey the word. So you see here that Jesus Christ is either going to be the cornerstone of your life or he's going to be the stumbling stone of your life. Verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What's it saying there? It's saying this, that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone that's been rejected. I'm not going to, I'm going to, I'm going to reject his sacrifice for me because I'm, I feel better about myself if I live a good life, religion, or I'm going to totally reject his claims upon me. That's rebellion. He's been rejected, but he's the chief cornerstone. And you and I, are, he is calling us to himself to build us upon that cornerstone. And what a cornerstone of a building do? He, before we had like fancy surveying and everything, you lay the cornerstone, and it was what was set up to be the, make sure that the building was square. And so everything else in the building fought comes, flows from that cornerstone to make sure it's square. And we're being built up on that foundation to be a spiritual house. For what purpose? So that's God's glory, his presence, his spirit, his nature would be in our midst. So for what purpose? So that when we may proclaim the excellencies or the goodness, the greatness, the beauty of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The purpose of the church as we are planting and have gotten a year now into this whole planting journey. The purpose of the church is order to, for us to be built up together into this house that God's presence and his nature and his character dwells in so that the people who are around us, who are outside the church, they look in the windows and they, or they come in our midst and they see the excellencies, the beauty, the greatness, the glory of the Jesus Christ that we serve, the one who came and sacrificed his life for us, 
nor to abolish the systems of religion and the systems of rebellion to call us to himself. That's why we're doing this. That's why we're here this morning, and that's why this that we're, that we're doing really, really matters. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.